1: Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, have identity politics gone too far? The politics of personal identity are a potent force, from the rise in salience of gender politics and focus on ethnic identity, to political insurgencies in Europe and the election of Donald Trump. Now a tub-thumping Russia joins the club, emphasising its difference from the West. But other tribes are on the march too, from the hashtaggers at MeToo to the Occupy movement. So why have a politics of sharp-edged identity become so powerful right now? And is there any way back to a more cohesive society? Our guest, Amy Chua, is professor of law at Yale and author of Political Tribes, Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations. She's also the author of Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, that undaunted parental tribe who get up to watch violin practice at dawn. She joins me on the line from Yale now. Amy Chua, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Anne.
1: So why is the prospect of belonging to a tribe so powerfully attractive in modern societies as as well as in history?
0: Well, to begin
1: with, it's actually hardwired
0: in human beings. It doesn't mean that we can't overcome it. Obviously, the Enlightenment was an attempt to overcome tribalism in a sense. But we are as a species, we need to belong to groups. Even if you just divide children into, you know, you're the red group and the blue group. It's astounding. They will instantly want to feel that their group, even though they don't know anything about the children on the other side, better, smarter, morally superior. And it's very unconscious. Again, it's certain types of group connections. It's not anything, you know, but when I use tribalism, I'm really referring to a kind of identity where your own self becomes almost subsumed in part of a larger, a larger group. And that can be nationalism, it can be ethnic, and recently it can be a, a kind of form of modern identity politics. In a way, it's cosmopolitanism and these great projects to kind of overcome tribalism and be one, uh, you know, citizens of the world that are almost going against human nature more.
1: And when you say modern identity politics, why do you think it's especially evident in Western politics now?
0: What's happened in the United States, and I believe in many countries across Europe, is that it used to be whites in America dominated the country economically, politically, and culturally. And when a group is so dominant, all kinds of terrible things can happen. You get oppression and slavery, but they're kind of comfortably dominant. What's happened right now is with the massive demographic change in the United States, with whites about to lose their majority status by... The predictions are about 2044. Now, every group in America feels threatened. A study shows that 67% of working class whites feel they are more discriminated against than minorities. Christians feel threatened. You see that in the political rhetoric. You know, they're attacking Jesus, they're attacking the Bible. So when people feel threatened, they kind of hunker down. And this is part of why you see identity politics on both sides of the political spectrum right now. For the first time, In recent history, there were open white nationalist movements. I mean, these have always been around, but they were always underground. Now, you know, there are conferences covered by the Atlantic.
1: But is that an example of society becoming more divided or the divisions just being more visible? Perhaps, to cite your example, that conference or that underground gathering of white nationalists, would have been known only to itself and only to its own penumbra. But social media ensures that everybody can be aware of it.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, tribalism, again, it's always been around. In the United States, you know, it felt for a long time that there wasn't any tribalism because there was just one very dominant tribe let's roughly call it whites which is you know of course a, a constructed term they were very dominant but there were lots of groups who were silenced and oppressed and all these things so part of what we feel as the chaos we're seeing and all this dissent is as you say really just finally some voices that were previously suppressed allowed to talk the problem is that polls show that in the united states today all views are more extreme. So, for example, Republicans and Democrats used to have much more overlap. Everything was more in the middle. For example, on immigration, you know, it wasn't so black and white. So social media is a, a main culprit because you now hear what you want to hear over and over. And the real risk isn't that there are all these groups and, you know, identities. I mean, that's that, that could be fine. It's that are we losing the connective tissue that makes us all Americans or makes us all whatever country you pick.
1: And uh, let's talk a, a bit about where Donald Trump fits into this. In some ways, he's almost too easy a target, isn't he? he this is the caricature of divisiveness and of a kind of identity politics of, of the right, which seems in some ways to have taken the left by surprise. There was almost a sense that the left owned identity politics and then the, the, the type that succeeded and fielded the president came from the, the other end of the spectrum. Am I being a bit unfair? No, you. he spotted something for all his,
0: you know, obvious, <laughs> um, let's just say, um, shortcomings. Um, he did see something that other politicians failed to see. First of all, a lot of people don't understand how America's white working class could vote for a billionaire. And you know, there are all kinds of theories. Are they idiots? Do they? Are they just so racist? But it's it, from a if you, from a tribal perspective, it's actually much clearer. Donald Trump has done a much better job than any other politician in the United States, as at portraying himself as a member of the same cultural tribe, as large swaths of America, who have been feeling neglected
1: and persecuted. So, so, so tell me how on cultural tribes? So there's. Donald Trump, as you say, a man who's made a lot of money, came from uh, money and has made more, who seems to me I sort of you know, encountered first in that kind of very moneyed, mercantile property world of New York. How can that be a cultural continuity of oh the my tribe of uh, poor white Americans?
0: Very simply. Just think of most listeners to The Economist. I can imagine their judgment of the way he talks, the way he dresses, the way he stuffs himself on McDonald's, that he, he watches worldwide wrestling which most kind of elites on the coast find vulgar and misogynistic, this flag-waving NASCAR bit. So What's critical is that every time he gets called out, so many people in the middle of America, that's what they experience all the time. At their workplace, they're always saying things the wrong way. They don't know the politically correct language, which, by the way, is changing constantly. So when they see him being attacked for not saying something right or saying something that's outrageous, they just kind of relate to him. And so you know, when I say cultural tribe, you can flip it. A lot of let's loosely call them urban or cosmopolitan elites, it is actually a very insular tribe of its own. You know, to be cosmopolitan, you have to have a certain amount of means to have traveled and met people from all kinds of places. Um, And Donald Trump is, is kind of anti that tribe.
1: Uh, Where do you think he fits? If you're making a comparison, and I like the sweep that you have across the political spectrum here, you know, avoiding that slightly long faced way of using the word divisive just to mean people that you don't uh, agree with. In some cases, you often say that he's rather more like people uh, from very different part of the spectrum. You use Hugo Chavez, um, who led Venezuela rather disastrously. As, as an example, yes. what, what would Donald Trump have in common with someone that the most kind of hardline leftists would, would put on their posters? The parallels are just incredibly
0: interesting. So in 1998, Hugo Chavez swept to power in Venezuela on a populist platform, tapping into this deep social resentment um, to the absolute horror of the establishment. It was extremely parallel to the election of Donald Trump in 2016. The elites couldn't believe it. They didn't see it coming. How could anyone vote for this guy that says crazy things about You know, baseball and Mars and just attacks capitalism. But he played this populist card with a kind of a racial, ethnic tinge. He actually called himself the Indian from Barinas. He said, I have African features. I mean, these are just terms that horrified the elite. But in fact, it is the case that in Venezuela, the elites were much lighter skinned, kind of European cultured, and 80 percent of the population was darker skinned with African and indigenous heritage. And Hugo Chavez just tapped right into that shamelessly. Donald Trump did everything similarly with the racial polarity reversed. His base was white. And without necessarily explicitly using language, when he said, make America great again, it's really tapping into these fears of people seeing the country changing. Oh, my goodness, I can't talk the way I used to talk. Everything I do, I'm called racist or misogynist. And he tapped into that anxiety. And it's very, very parallel. Hugo Chavez was actually the first tweeter in chief, not Donald Trump.
1: I I did notice that. I thought that that was a very interesting point. (laughs) What about the tribalism of cosmopolitan elites, which you mention, are by definition they are a smaller group. They're often a group who feel uh, quite entitled. They can be a bit a bit preachy. That would be, I think, probably a fair accusation to <laughs> to level at liberal cosmopolitan elites. And where would that then leave a more radical politics, which in some ways wants to challenge that? But if you take something like Occupy Wall Street, or indeed let's talk about things in the news now, like uh, the Me Too, hashtag Me Too campaign, do they run similar risks?
0: So the phenomena are slightly different. First of all, yes, cosmopolitan elites um, often think of themselves as the opposite of tribal because after all, they want to be citizens of the world. They want to transcend all boundaries even national ones. But again, that is a very exclusive small club, hard to get into. The Me Too movement um, is a little bit different from Occupy in the sense that it's very, very ground up. And I think very authentic in the sense that it, it started with you know women who felt this way. My challenge to the Occupy movement is, this is a movement that was supposed to be against inequality, fighting for the poor. The problem was, it didn't actually include any members of the poor. What I show is that this movement, while it's done incredibly important things, was overwhelmingly populated by extremely privileged people. Because who who has is poor, has time to take off a couple of months to, to march. I mean, But you so know, you this, see. Amy, this isn't new.
1: I mean, the suffragettes as a group and the suffragists, they were often very uh, moneyed or privileged people who had time out to lead movements for social change. I, I you might remember Mrs. Banks in Mary Poppins. Yes. I mean, she's absolutely yes. of the Edwardian uh, in Britain tribe of the cosmopolitan privileged liberal elite. I do think it's different, though, because just imagine if the suffragette movement didn't include women. Or if the civil
0: rights, are you suggesting that
1: that's why it's not as salient as it once was?
0: I definitely think that it's a huge part of why the Occupy movement, even described by its own leaders, is a failure. It it did a lot of great things, but it it didn't include members of the very group whose rights it was supposedly championing.
1: Let's talk about your proposition, if you like. It's a plea, really, for a, a kind of unity or a return to a more unified view of groups and classes and, uh, and races. Didn't identity politics kind of challenge that because they allow people to break out of a requirement that they occupy the fudgy middle ground?
0: Yes. Now, I am not like a lot of these um, liberals who just say, we must immediately have assimilation. We can't have these group identities. I'm you know, I'm Ch- daughter of Chinese immigrants. I know what it means, the power of tribalism and group identity. And I think it's a futile task to say, get rid of them. All I'm saying is that what we're losing in a country like America is we were always a country that had lots of different flourishing subgroups. But there was always this connective tissue, that, a sense that we're all also all Americans. And that is what I think is at risk here. I think that as um, things get more and more bitter, and when tribalism actually takes over the whole political system, we're at a point where we look at people who voted on the other side as almost immoral people, dumb people, people who are enemies, who are not fellow Americans. And that's when things get very dangerous. And you see countries actually fracturing, something that I, you know, the, the UK knows something about.
1: So what about the impact of demanding unity on kind of groups who feel strongly disenfranchised? I mean, that is their identity, if you like, that's their tribe. We could use Black Lives Matter as, as an example here. Yeah, probably, and I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing you know, what what they would say, but I think a lot of adherents would say, well, I'm not really particularly bothered about this unity quest. I've, I feel completely, you know, that my course has been marginalised and misunderstood. They're Therefore, it runs into a sort of verbal argument that they would see people who say all lives matter as being in some way at odds with them. Are they right? Here's the
0: thing, this debate has gotten so stupid. You know, all of these movements started off with something deeply important. This may surprise you. I'm a very big supporter of Black Lives Matter. It started with genuine pain out of people being shot and, you know, whatever side you're on, it started that way. But it quickly became caricatured and a meme. Even All Lives Matter started off as an innocent move, but it quickly became like this two tribal thing where people are just hurling epithets on each side. So my idea is that we're just off track, and and that's why we're not getting anywhere. You you can take any single debate, gun control. You know, it starts off with something authentic, and even before the mourning of these deaths is over, people retreat into their tribal positions, you start demonizing the other. They want to see children killed, and nothing ever advances. So I don't think it makes any sense to say, stop Black Lives Matter, even if that that's just not even possible. Um, it's more that we need to start listening to each other. So that's more what the book is a plea for. It's not saying don't have these groups. You know, that's kind of this liberal bubble. Often people not seeing that that's their own identity. It's really for just we need to open up a conversation. Even the, the vocabulary is impossible now. It's like a game of gotcha.
1: Indeed. I couldn't agree with you more. But then again, <laughs> then again, I mean, I think some people are much more sensitive about language. And that is going to be an interesting, if you like a sort of small tribal divide to an extent between generations, it must be said. You know, I suppose a lot of us have endlessly been told by our children what we can't say. Does that happen to you, eh? Well, I teach on a college campus, so
0: I am so well-trained. But that's why I've been speaking quite loudly about this. You know, immigration. I mean, I'm a huge immigration fan. The daughter of two immigrants wrote a book about how great immigration is. But I think it's ridiculous that in this country now, people in the middle of the country who it's it's reasonable that they feel anxious about the demographic change but if they start saying something it you know they may not express it in a way that is politically correct and immediately people will say oh my gosh you're a racist xenophobe and that i think is just terrible it shuts down debate it drives people underground where they become actually more extreme so so i think it's a real problem on on, on this vocabulary policing you know be a little generous maybe they didn't Use the exact vocabulary. But to go straight to calling half the country racist, xenophobic, Islamophobe, it stops us from having these incredibly difficult conversations that we absolutely need to have.
1: Uh, let's look at, uh, at another sort of possible cultural approach to a solution to uh, what you define. And you cite the musical Hamilton, that runaway success, transatlantic success, as an example of how patriotic culture can unite. But help me out here. I mean, telling people to go and see Hamilton in extremely expensive production doesn't sound like the epitome of inclusivity. It's expensive to
0: be sure, and but let me tell you why. Uh, what people miss about Hamilton. So in the United States right now, you have on the left a lot of people just absolutely saying America is a land of oppression. We are built on white supremacy and genocide. And what I say is that that's extremely dangerous. It's one thing to say that we have repeatedly failed to live up to our ideals. We did commit genocide. You know, there has been white supremacy. But it's very different to say that we have these wonderful ideals, but we fail to live up to them. And saying that our ideals are all lies. On the right, meanwhile, you have people just saying, we've accomplished everything. The American dream is achieved. Why do these people on the left, why don't they just stop whining? And so what is so brilliant about Hamilton that people miss is that it's extremely patriotic. A lot of people just say, oh, it's all minority caste. It's just politically correct. No. No. It is true that the caste of minorities shows that, look, these people were never allowed to have center stage. Our founders did hold slaves, but the ideals in the Constitution, the ideals in the Declaration, are transcendent and they are worth fighting for. I think that actually there was nothing cynical. About Hamilton, so it's actually not a very traditionally left piece of art at all.
1: Uh, one of the things I, I wondered when I was going through your book was really how it related to to what we talked about the the last time that we spoke, which you horrified me by telling me was about seven years ago, and it was when you were publishing your battle hymn of the tiger mother, a tribe, sometimes an embattled tribe, getting criticism from from all quarters. Uh, how was the tribe of tiger mothers doing?
0: You were so right. You know, thinking about it now, um, uh, parenting is really a tribal zone. (laughs) Um, If you do it this way or you do it that way, people feel so – it's so important to defend it as the only right way. You know, I actually intended, as you know, the book to be much more subtle because my younger daughter rebelled. And it was kind of a reflection about how can we combine the best of East and West – but because, I guess of the tribalism of the of the topic, it took a life of its own. And uh, seven years later, I, I remained, I stand proud as a, as a mother with uh, high expectations. We survived it all. I'm, I'm I'm pleased to say that my daughters are doing well. But uh, yes, I learned a lot from that experience. A lot about tribalism.
1: Amitra, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, what do you think? What's your tribe? And can you see yourself seeing eye to eye with someone on the other side? How should we bridge these great divides? And is there an alternative to identity politics? We're on email, radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Do get in touch and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist.